Today's reading is taken from Colossians 2, 16 to 23. That's Colossians 2, 16 to 23. <clears throat> Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they have seen and their unspiritual minds puff them up with the idle notions. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These rules have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatments of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Today's talk began in a very innocuous way. Patros sent me an email saying, would you preach on this passage in Colossians? And being a loyal, obedient associate minister, as Pat was kind enough to describe me last Sunday, I immediately said, yes, delighted. But only after I'd sat down and read these verses, a stream of schoolboy expressions of the kind I used to use when a form teacher set the class an extremely difficult essay question passed my lips. Crikey, cripes, core blimey. I can't do this, I said to myself. And then in search of inspiration, I searched for uh, the great commentaries on Colossians on my shelves, of whom one of the greatest ones was written by somebody called Professor G.B. Kerr, there's a world authority on Colossians, only to discover that Professor Kerr was no help at all, because this is what he had to say about today's reading. And I quote him, Unfortunately, this is one of the most obscure passages Paul ever wrote. I'm sure you all got that. Well, thank you, Pat, for passing this buck of biblical obscurity to your honorary associate minister. <laughs> and I must admit that I was at first reading yours truly bewildered by it. But my bewilderment was solved because... I am not really a theologian at all, despite having a degree in this subject. As it happens, by some 
academic miracle, I'm the possessor of, surprised possessor, of two degrees from Oxford University. Uh, my first degree at the age of eight, 19, I read law. I did no work at all, and by the skin of my teeth, I scraped a third. Now, in those days, a third was said to be a degree reserved for those who wrote unusual answers to questions the examiners had not asked. <laughs> but despite this difficulty, miraculously, I did get a degree in law. I never used it. I went off into journalism, and I thought that was the end of my academic life. But then, at the age of 56, for complicated reasons, after coming out of prison, I went back to Oxford. And I sometimes joke that I made this new career move by managing to find the only institution in Britain that had worse food and more uncomfortable beds than a prison. And this was an Anglican Theological College, Wycliffe Hall, where I spent three very happy years taught by brilliant teachers like Alistair McGrath, Michael Green, Graham Tomlin, all legends in the world of theology. And I worked very hard and I emerged, to my astonishment, with a, a first-class degree, another academic miracle. But when it comes to trying to explain today's obscure reading for Colossians, it's my third in law, which is far more use than my first in theology. On the whole, I was a failure at law, but of course I took one or two small nuggets of wisdom for the very rare lectures I attended. And one of them, which law teachers say all the time, whenever you get a law case, you must always look for the ratio decidendi. And that is a pompous Latin way of saying, you must search for the pivotal point, the vital piece of evidence, the crucial argument on which the whole case turns. That's the reason for the decision the ratio decidenda of the case. I think there are probably one or two barristers here today, and I hope they'll forgive me if I can say that, in my experience, learned friends can be past masters of spouting geezers of irrelevant reasons why the court should find in favor of their client. They produce huge smoke screens of guff on why black should really be regarded as white. But when you get to the ratio decidenda of the case, it's something like that the burglar, you know, man accusable, has actually been proved to have left his fingerprints on the jewel box of the owner of the house which he's been burgling. Well, that's the turning point of the case. That is the retro dindi. That's the thing on which the whole thing turns. And so, some 58 years after scraping that third in Lord Oxford, when I looked for reading, I couldn't explain it theologically at all, but I was able to find the vital turning point, the ratio decidendi, what Paul is telling the Colossians. And I spotted quite easily, just as you'll spot it easily, it consists of seven words in verse 17 of our reading, and Paul says, the reality, however, is to be found in Christ. Just hang on to those seven words, to which we will return with some intensity and passion. But to get a full understanding of these verses, we first have to travel with Paul on a journey which requires us to make great efforts to separate the wheat from the chaff, the wood from the trees, the shadows from the reality, both in first century Colossae and now in different disguises in 21st uh, century Britain. If I had time, 
and I'm now conscious of Pat's new gadget, the digital clock, ticking away as a check on preaching verbosity, I would take you off into first century digressions and diversions such as Gnosticism, angel worship, the Colossian heresies, whatever they were, the new moon festival rituals, Sabbath restrictions and prohibitions, etc., etc., etc. Good news, we can forget about them, or most of them. Because even though some of them do linger on in our 21st century lives, you soon realize as you read this passage that what Paul is getting up to here is what advertising agents call knocking copy, or what political spin doctors call negative campaigning. What does that mean? It means attacking your opponent's weaknesses, lampooning them, caricaturing them, ridiculing them. And that is what Paul is doing when he mocks people who are obsessed with religious diets, what you eat, what you drink, new moon festivals, the Gnostic cult of angel worship, and unspiritual minds. And as he goes on in this uh, passion for negative campaigning, he does a wonderful demolition job on negative religious rules, some of which are still around today. Do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, and idle notions of puffed up people with unspiritual minds. What I think the great apostle is doing here is having a rant. He's having a rant against what he calls shadows, the views and vices of first century colossi, which appear to have no connection whatever with our lives today in Notting Hill. But hold on a moment. Secular Britain is not quite so far removed from the heresies of ancient Colossae as we might like to think. For it is a bizarre truth that when a community or a nation ceases to believe in God, it does not do the predictable thing and believe in nothing. Instead, it will believe in anything. And that is why today we are surrounded by strange things like wokeism, cancel culture, new ageism, QAnon, fake news, microdosing, wellness, mindfulness, gender dysphoria, fortune telling, astrology, often promoted by a weird and wonderful cast of uh, self-appointed uh, experts, psychics, fortune tellers, swamis, yogis, and quacks of one kind or another. Some of them are comic, most of them are questionable, but none of them appear to give any real or lasting satisfaction. As the old Rolling Stone number goes, I can't get no satisfaction from any of these fads or fixes, ancient or modern. And that's why Paul, in his day, was so right to be saying in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is in Christ. Those of you who were here last Sunday will remember that Pat preached powerfully on an earlier passage from Colossians and focused on what it meant to have the gospel words, fullness in Christ. And I make no apology for returning to much the same question and to ask, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, in this house of God, in this spirit-filled church, surely we know something, something profound about building a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
In a few moments, we're going to have Holy Communion. And in the center of the prayers there, there is a prayer that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. What does it mean to dwell in or be in Christ? Which includes being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Why is this goal so much more attractive than the fleeting shadows of New Ageism or all the other isms or wasms that we are tempted to try but find so unsatisfactory? What St. Paul is saying in this passage is that being in Christ is a liberating experience because it means freedom. It means freedom from the man-made external rules and regulations which will never transform a human heart. Of course, there are some eternal God-made rules such as the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, and so on. But here in this passage, at full negative campaigning throttle, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul is ridiculing the old synagogue and church rules, some of which are quite familiar territory still, such as do not touch, do not taste. Some of you may remember, perhaps with a wry smile, that even the great Roman Catholic Church solemnly taught its followers for centuries that it was a sin to eat meat on Fridays. The Pope only cancelled that absurd rule a few years ago. And with another wry smile, we might note that a lot of good Christians still seem to believe that it is pious or virtuous to give up chocolates or alcohol for Lent. Well, good luck to them in their absence. What Paul is saying here is that all such rules or diets is just a load of old cobblers. He's asserting that we find the reality of being in Christ, and once we find it, we don't need rules from the outside because we have Jesus on the inside. If we can build a right relationship with Jesus, we enter a new dimension of freedom, freedom from old ways, old sins, old unsatisfied desires. We're a new creation, living in a new reality and loving our new relationship being in Christ. But, and how's the big question, how do we get to this new reality of being in Christ? Paul does not actually tell us in today's reading, but he has plenty to say in other passages from his other epistles, and of course the Gospels are full of strong and clear signposts to what Jesus teaches us about a real relationship with him. So let's spend the second part of this talk thinking about what Paul calls the reality that is to be found in Christ, or what we might call finding a real relationship with Jesus. Let me get a little personal here. During most of my adult midlife, if anyone ever asked me, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I think my first reaction would have been, what a cheesy question. But then I think I'd have rather nervously said, well, yes, maybe I think I do. And that would have been a half-true answer because I was, until my mid-50s, a half-Christian. It's a relationship I now know to be about as useful as being half-pregnant. But at the time, there were some useful half-things about my half-Christian relationship with Jesus. Looking back on it, I think my relationship with Jesus was rather like my relationship with my bank manager in the small country town in Suffolk, 
where I grew up. And those, by the way, were the days when bank managers were real people, not call centers in Bangladesh. But for a start, I knew that my bank manager or bank manager stroke Jesus existed, and that was a step in the right direction. And then I thought he was sufficiently important to be visited in his premises every so often. So just as I every so often went into the local branch of Barclays, so I went to my local church. That was another step in the right direction. And then I thought rather favorably, if far too condescendingly, about bank manager stroke Jesus. Largely because, I'm sorry to say, I thought he might be helpful to me one day when I was morally overdrawn and needed a spiritual overdraft. But all this time, the fundamental mistake that I was making was that I thought I was in charge of the account. However polite I was on Sunday playing lip service to my relationship with bank manager Jesus, the other six days of the week I didn't give him too much thought. And that was indeed because I knew that I was in charge of the account and that I could use it in any way I liked. In the words of the old Frank Sinatra song, I could do it my way, or so I thought. And so my midlife relationship with Jesus was just a shadow and not a reality. And that is the great divide which Paul is concentrating on in his letter to the Colossians. Of course, it's the way a lot of Christians think. Maybe one or two of you think like that too. But if you stay in that half-hearted, half-committed, half-Christian mindset until you hear and respond to the call of Christ, you won't make any real progress. The call of Christ comes in many different forms. Sometimes it's a gentle whisper, and you hear it in a song, in a prayer, in a private conversation, or even in a sermon. And sometimes it's a call you hear when you're lonely, when you're frightened, when you're depressed, and worried about the emptiness of your life. And sometimes it comes, as it did to Elijah on Mount Horeb, in the middle of the equivalent earthquake, wind and fire, when suddenly one's life seems to be falling apart because of something like a broken relationship, a divorce, a bereavement, a financial crisis, a career disaster. In my own case, it was a self-inflicted fall from grace when I was a cabinet minister and I went through the agony of disgrace, defeat, divorce, bankruptcy and jail. Pretty good royal flush of crises by anybody's standards. But it can be, and often is, in our darkest hours, that Christ calls to us, and he whispers, and he knocks. If he does that, keep in mind the great verse of Revelation 3.19, which is highlighted in the Alpha Course. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will eat with him, and he with me. If you open that door, it can be the start of a relationship with Jesus and finding the reality of what it means to be in Christ. As with all relationships, it has to be worked at. You have to work towards a commitment to Jesus. But the more you seek, the more you will find. The more you pray, the more you will hear. And as you explore the enormous attractions of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you might perhaps be powerfully attracted by the teachings of Christ, the healing power of Christ, the loving character of Christ, and the example of Christ. 
I was attracted by all these feelings. The more I studied and the more I thought and the more I prayed. But one attraction was far more powerful than all the others. And that was the forgiveness of Christ. Now we're all sinners. As we said in our confession today, we do wrong things by thought and word and deed and in what we have left undone. But to me, far and away, the greatest blessing of entering into a committed relationship with Jesus is the safe and certain knowledge that if we're sorry for them, our sins will be forgiven. And that's, I think, his greatest message proclaimed throughout the good news of the gospel. On the theme of forgiveness, most of you will know the parable of the prodigal son, surely the ultimate story of God's forgiveness. And let me tell you an amazing but powerful anecdote about the best way I ever heard it told. Back in 99, when I was serving in 18 months prison sentence for perjury, I was passed around like a parcel from jail to jail, and for a time, I ended up in a prison called HMP Stanford Hill in Kent. And once a year, the inmates put on what was called the inmates' open evening, supposedly a mixture of the spiritual and the theatrical. And the governor turned up, the town mayor turned up, various local dignitaries turned up. So it was quite an event. But it was also, for most of the time, an embarrassingly cringe-making event. Various prisoners came to the microphone and recited naff verses of poetry, such as roses are red, violets are blue, oh Lord Jesus, how I love you, very sincere, but not very compelling. But then all of a sudden, four black guys, evidently with hidden thespian talents, showed up on stage and performed a little playlet of the prodigal son parable told in prison slang. Now the father in this little playlet was played in the manner of Marlon Brando in The Godfather, an elderly geezer, late in years, past his prime, but still the patriarch of the family. And then along comes the bumptious, rebellious younger son and gives his father a hard time saying, oh, come on, Dad, you're past it. You've had your day. It's time to divvy up the swag. It's time to open up the family floorboards and give me my share. I want to go on the lamb. I want to go pubbing and clubbing in Torremolinos. I want it now. So old Marlon Brando, the father, gracefully did give way, opened up the floorboards, handed out bags of cash, and lets the son go off to Torremolinos, no doubt, to enjoy what St. Paul's calls the sensual indulgences of the world. And the four old father stayed at home, rather sadly, with Mrs. God, a new character called Doris, not actually in the Bible. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, um, the scene, the domestic scene of the father, always longing for the prodigal son, always watching out in his telescope every day in case he was to come home. And then suddenly, peering out through the telescope as he did every morning, the father sees the son a long way off. And he went wild with joy. And he shouted to Mrs. God, Doris, I've seen him. I've seen our son. He's coming home. Where are me running shoes? What running shoes, says Doris? The running shoes I ran the London Marathon in. You ran the London Marathon 18 years ago, protests Doris, but she finds the shoes. The father puts them on. He sprints off to welcome his prodigal son as the curtain falls. Now, why was that 
prison playlet such a good representation of the parable of the prodigal son? Because it highlights the most important verse in the parable, Luke 15, 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. That forgiveness is the essence of being in Christ. It is also the essence of the cross of Christ on which he died so that all our sins can be forgiven. If any of you want a relationship with Jesus, if you are sincerely sorry for your sins, if you want to find the reality of being in Christ, then ask for it and he will run to you and throw his arms around you. For that is the joy, that is the reality of being in Christ. And all of us should pray for it, work for it, and go for it. Amen.